The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, so continuing on in the Pilgrim's Progress, we're going to do the final part of the interpreter's house and then go to the cross and the sepulcher. One of the great, great parts of the book. Uh, they probably ask this all the time. How many people read Pilgrim's Progress before we started the series? All right, so the cross and the sepulcher is certainly one of the best things you can read in your entire life, and especially at times when you're struggling, right? So when um, John Bunyan is writing this, again, as we go through the interpreter's house, we're going to see how, how, why he lines it up the way he does. But we know as we read books, you read them at different stages in your life and different things are going on. And it's certainly the case that reading Pilgrim losing his burden um, can just touch your heart, really. And, uh, and you know, you can, be, you can be like in a really, uh, if I put it this way, like a really good place, you know, where you're just real happy with the Lord and still you read it and it just is, is wonderful. Probably me reading out loud to you won't have the same effect, but when you're by yourself and reading, it's just, it's just so, so, so good. Well, let's pray. Lord, we do come and we ask again, Lord, um, that you would be with us today, and we pray, God, that everything that happens would, by your grace, uh, draw our hearts up towards Jesus Christ, God, and you would be pleased to minister to your people. We pray for this time here as we go through this book, that you would, um, Lord, that you would bless us, God, that we would be edified uh, with gospel truths. Uh, As we go through this, we do pray, God, that you would help me to say things that are true and uh, not say things that aren't true, God. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand and understand in a way that we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So he's leaving uh, the interpreter's house, and he has one more, uh, one more thing to look at. And he's actually anxious to go, which is, is actually part of the whole thing. He wants to, he wants to be on his way. Uh, so the interpreter says, Terry, till I show, you, uh, show thee, this is how mine, mine, the old one, till I show you one thing more, and then you shall go on your way. So he took Christian by the hand and led him to a chamber where there was one rising out of bed. And as he put on his raiment, he shook and trembled. Then said Christian, why does this man thus tremble? And the interpreter then bid him to tell, the Christian, to tell Christian the reason of his doing so. So he began and said, this night as I was in my sleep, I dreamed. And behold, the heavens grew exceedingly black. And it also thundered and lightning in a most fearful wise, and it put me into ag- in agony. So I looked up in my dream, and I saw the clouds racked at an unusual rate, upon which I heard a great sound of a trumpet. And I saw also a man sit upon the cloud, attended with the thousands of heaven. They were all in flaming fire. Also the heavens were on a burning flame. And I heard then a voice saying, Arise, you dead, and come to judgment. And with that the rocks rent. The graves opened, and the dead that were in them came forth. Some of them were exceedingly glad and looked upward, and some sought to hide themselves under the mountains. Then I saw the man that sat upon the cloud open the book and bid the world draw near. Yet there was, by reason of a fierce flame that issued out and came from before him, 
a convenient distance between him and them as between the judge and the prisoners at the bar. And I heard it also proclaimed to them that attended on the man that sat on the clouds, gather together the tares and the chaff and the stubble and cast them into the burning lake. And with that, the bottomless pit opened just where about I stood, out of the mouth of which there came in abundant manner smoke and coals and fire with hideous noises. It was also said to the same persons, gather my wheat into my gardener. And with that, I saw many catched up or caught up and carried away into the clouds, but I was left behind. I also sought to hide myself, but I could not, for the man that sat upon the clouds still kept his eye upon me. My sins also came to my mind, and my conscience did accuse me on every side. Upon this, I waked from my sleep. Well, it would be a terrible, a ter- terrifying dream, right? But it's offered in a certain context here. I want to say, so last week, Daniel, I think, gave us one of the uh, key, interpretive keys, right, for the whole book, and that's this, when he was going through the, the man that um, wanted to um, win his way into heaven, right, the, the man that put his name on the ledger, said, put my name down, and then he takes up his armor, and he starts to win his way into the heavenly kingdom, and Daniel made mention, that's what the book is about, Right? So that, uh, that actually is a very short little picture of the Pilgrim's Progress. The Pilgrim's Progress, by and large, is not a conversion story, right? It's, it's a sanctification story. So it's talking about what it looks like after one comes to Christ and what it looks like to persevere, what it looks like to go on the road, what it looks like to run the race, what it looks like to encounter difficulties as you go. So he's in the interpreter's house is the beginning as it were, of his, of his sanctification, right? Of his, of his, of his moving on, of his, of his uh, in his own way, assailing, as it were, uh, the kingdom, right? So we could say that that's what sanctification looks like, right? It's like, why the interpreter's house? And uh, why all these little things uh, before he gets to the sepulcher? Why these things before he actually starts his journey? And I want to say, because that's, it really does mirror uh, very much um, the Christian life. And for some, maybe not so much, but for others, a, a whole lot. And again, this, a lot of this is Bunyan's own, um, own life being told in this. But when you first come to Christ, if you weren't someone who was raised in, in the faith and raised in a family where you just, you know, you really... I came to Christ, I know I did, but I just don't exactly know when because I always trusted in him. If, you, if that's not your conversion story, if yours is more like Bunyan, like I was, I was in darkness and I was brought into light, your testimony is probably similar, though you may not have thought about it, but when you came to Christ, did you know everything there was to know right away? <laughs> okay, so that one we know. Okay, my, my testimony is very similar. But I want to say, were there things that you were taught first off Almost immediately, that if you look back on your life, you could go, that stuck with me almost from the first day all the way through, right? I, I want to say, I think most of us have. So when, uh, when I came to Christ, I really was pretty clueless about justification or anything like that. And you think, well, that's kind of weird because you would think that would be the foundational thing. Well, I understood I was asking God to forgive me my sins uh, because of Christ, but I really had just such a limited 
understanding of what that even meant, right? I, I, I knew it meant something, and I knew it was real, but if you were to ask me uh, you know, what that was all about, the most I could say would have been this. If you believe and pray, Jesus will come into your heart and, you, and your sins will be forgiven. And that was about the extent of my knowledge, right? But the Christian, uh, it was a parachurch ministry. It wasn't, it wasn't like a church like this. It was, it, was, it was a young people's parachurch thing. And one of the things that they, they were really good with was this. The Bible is the word of God. and is absolutely the word of God. And there is nothing, there is nothing that, that is above the word of God, right? So in everything in your life, look to the Bible because the Bible is the word of God. Well, that was probably my first lesson, right? It was a great lesson to have. It stuck with me throughout all my time. You know, throughout all my time being a Christian, that foundational thing was one of the things that God used in my life. I really, through that, I really never had any doubts that the, after I was a Christian, never had any doubts that the Bible was the word of God. If I encountered, um, you know, like later in seminary, any kind of higher criticism stuff or something, it never fazed me. It didn't phase me if somebody uh, that was, you know, that you would have looked up as somebody being somebody in the faith, and if they would have then said something against the word of God, God protected me from all of that in part because of this one lesson early on that the Bible's the word of God and it just simply is the word of God. So what Bunyan's doing here in part is, is picturing that. There are things in your life early on that you're taught, right? And they stick with you. They're the lessons, some of the lessons that God wants you to have for all, all of your life, right? Now, of course, you, you add to that, right? But some of those first things, you just, you know, you're just so happy God put that there, in a sense, right from the get-go, and it, it never left. So in a way, if you could picture it like that, that's what's going on in the house of the interpreter. He's, he's giving these pictures of things that he needs to know and that he will know, and as we watch him uh, unfold, his life unfold, we'll see these things come up all the way through, and he, in a sense, he could be reminded, oh yeah, I remember way back at the very beginning, of my Christian walk, I already know this, right? So now I, I can navigate navigate my, my way through that, right? So Christian's beginning in his sanctification, and again, these things are meant, meant to stay with him. So coming to the uh, bedchamber of the trembling man, and we really, at some, in some sense, we need to read this thinking about that he was a Puritan, right? Okay, so John Bunyan's a Puritan, and he's writing with uh, not only, you know, like their style and stuff, but the concerns that they would have. And we see this again come up in the different uh, characters that he encounters right at the beginning here and then all the way through. So there are things that the Puritans would have been concerned about that Bunyan was concerned about, and he's addressing them, he's addressing them right away. So what, what does the trembling man, what, why is the trembling man trembling? Anybody? Well, it's not exactly. So I just, uh, what, ha- what happened to the trembling man that he's trembling? Maybe, but he had a dream, right? He certainly is, yeah, in the dream he's left behind. There's a little bit of ambiguity there, right? He dreams a dream. And what's the dream about? 
Judgment, yeah, it actually looks like last day's judgment, right? I mean, it's like the, the world appearing before the judge. He says there's, there's a space where you can't even approach the judge. And he said it's just like the judge being, and they call it the bar. So in, in England, you have the prisoner goes to the bar, right? And the judge stands behind that and stuff. So he's saying this is what's happening, right? There's this judgment happening. And there's two groups of people and the one group of people, they are happy, and the other group of people, they want the mountains to fall on them, and as I'm standing there, I am not asked to be caught up, right, and I still feel the weight of my sin, and I'm looking, and he's not in the pit, but where is he? Right on the edge of the pit, right? So, you ask me why I'm trembling, <laughs> That's why I'm trembling, right? So Bunyan, and I didn't read this part, but I'll just repeat it. After, after the scene and the trembling man goes and he tells him some more and the interpreter, he doesn't offer much commentary with this part, okay? He just simply says, do you understand what you saw? And Bunyan, our uh, Christian says, yeah, I did. And that's it, that's, that's the extent of the commentary on it, right? But he adds this one thing, he says, it gives me, it gives me, it makes me fearful, right? And it gives me hope. I'm both, I, from talking to the trembling man, Christian, okay, not the trembling man, he doesn't seem very hopeful. We don't know where he's, it looks like, you know, the picture being painted is he's going to be left behind, but the, fi- the final, the gavel hasn't quite fallen yet, right? We just know he's awake and he's afraid of where he's going to be. But the story is not about the trembling man. It's about Christian. And so Christian said, looks at this and goes, from looking at that guy, there's something about that that makes me fearful. And there's something about that that gives me hope. Well, Joel Beakey, in uh, one of his books on the Puritans, said this. He said, the Puritans believe that apostasy you know, the, where you would get to a place where your heart would be hardened to where it would never repent, right? Never, think of Esau, right? Never, never, never go to God, okay? Apostasy is, uh, is the state of affairs of impenitence that can never be repented of, right? Uh, and so the Puritans um, believed that apostasy was not a fantasy but a real danger, and that the only alternative to apostasy was perseverance. Okay? Uh, John Owen, in a, in a typical manner, says, let him that, uh, quoting, says, let him that ta- uh, thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then he says, when Peter had learned this truth by woeful experience, after all his boldness and forwardness, he gives this counsel to all saints, that they would pass the time of their sojourning here in fear knowing how near in our greatest peace and serenity evil and danger may lie at the door. So, here, so here's the thing. He's, he's, he's at, he says, I saw this and it made me afraid, but it also gave me hope. And putting it in the context of for a Puritan, he would have thought apostasy, apostasy is real, okay? Uh, not, lo- not like our, our uh, day and age where most people would, wouldn't even know what that meant. And most, uh, most uh, you know, if you look 
at the evangelical world, you would think they would go out of their way to tell you, no, you don't need to be afraid of sinning. What you really need to do is just build up all this confidence, whether you're sinning or not, right? But the Puritans would go, no, no, that's not true. So, uh, so the fearfulness is there. Why would the hope be there? Why would he look at, why would he look at the trembling man? Again, because the story's about pilgrim, or Christian, not about the trembling man. Why would, why would he look at that and go, it gives me hope? Yeah. Yeah. And who would those people be? Yeah. <laughs> it really is just that simple. It really is. I'm afraid because I, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that, but I'm hopeful because I am saved. Okay? There, here's my hope. My hope is this. Something has actually happened to me. And because something's happened to me, I'm hopeful. And by hopeful, it doesn't mean wishful thinking. It means I have good hope. I, I, I have good hope I know that I will, okay, reach the end because something's happened to me in the past. But the fearfulness comes in like this. Well, well, then what's the fearfulness? If the fearfulness, if his fearfulness is not, am I not, you know, am I saved, am I not saved? That's not what he's talking about here. Am I saved, am I not saved? I have fear, and it's not like an on and off light. I'm a Christian Oh, today I don't think I'm a Christian. Oh, today I do think I'm a Christian. Oh, today I don't think I'm a Christian. Oh, today I do think I'm a Christian, right? That would be that kind of, well, one day I have fear, one day I have hope, is, is what he's trying to convey here. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying for me, for Christian, as I look at this guy, I have something that's happened to me, and they both go together. For the rest of my life, okay, because this is the beginning of his sanctification, this is one of those things that I'm supposed to hang on to that's gonna help me all the way through the end, for the rest of my life, I'm going to be both fearful and hopeful. So how does that line up with a Christian? Well, again, the idea for the Puritans with the hope is that you're going to persevere. And the idea with the fearfulness is, so you better run the race. Okay, I will persevere because I will run the race. If I stop running the race... I have, I have no hope that I will persevere to the end, right? And it, it, it's this interesting thing, and again, for us, sometimes the balance may, may seem a little, I don't know, almost schizophrenic, but it's not. It's just wonderful picture of, I know that I'm saved, so therefore I run or I move in that direction, and if any time I stop moving in that direction, the fear motivates me to do what? To repent and move in that direction, right? So that, that's, that's, that's why he can walk away from this and say, hey, I can look at that guy and I can go fearfulness and hopefulness both at the same time. So Christian's reason for fear is that the threats and warnings are real. And we know this as we go through Hebrews and we talk about this, that when the Christian uh, goes through like Hebrews and you hear the warning signs, the Christian doesn't ignore those warning signs or doesn't think that they're for someone else. The Christian actually thinks that if there's a big sign up there that says stop, well, what does a Christian do? Stops. Okay, he actually stopped. If I push through, I've got no good reason to think that I'm not going to fall off the edge of the cliff, right? 
but, but, the, but the idea is, one, God's given me the eyes to see the stop sign. Two, he's put the stop sign up there. Three, he's given me the grace that I actually will stop. But if I ever presume upon that and push through, oh, well, that's a different story altogether, right? And he's not saying that you will. He believes in the perseverance of the saints. But again, they persevere because they actually, they actually continue to walk on. So there's reason for, reason for fear is threats and warnings are real. Reason for hope is that the promises are real. They're both real for the Christian. They're both, they're both completely real, right? So um, Thomas Watson says, a Christian's main comfort depends upon this doctrine of uh, perseverance. Take this away in your prejudiced religion and cut the sinews of all cheerful endeavor and, and uh, this is important for what Bunyan is trying to paint the picture of for the Christian life. So let me repeat this. Watson is talking about the doctrine of perseverance. And, his, and he says, it's the main comfort, right? He goes, it's, it's a Christian's main comfort. Well, of course, he's talking about as we move forward in this life. And he says, but if you take away this doctrine, okay, you cut out from underneath it what? All cheerful endeavors. Okay, and think about, so again, this is one of the things, Puritan, uh, Watson writing, Puritan Bunyan writing, what does a Christian life look like? Well, it can look like a lot of things, but it's always gonna look like it's moving forward in some sense. But oh, will it always move forward with this cheerfulness? No, it won't. What's he warning us against in part? Well, there are things that will stop you from moving forward in cheerfulness, and one of them is not having this doctrine of perseverance. And it isn't easy believism. It's the idea of running the race set before us, right? So the true doctrine of perseverance enables the church to walk both in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So he's going to leave now, and again, but think of it within... Uh, uh, the narrative of how he's, how he's building the story and how he's, he's painting the picture for us. He's now going to come to the cross and the cross is not, for Bunyan in this instance, uh, conversion. Because that's not where he puts it in the story, right? Th- this is after the wicked gate. So he's putting it in the story after, after the wicked gate. But it's the story of what it looks like for a Christian, okay, Again, as Daniel said, now he's, he's picked up the sword and he's already starting the battle, okay? And now, after these things have been given to him, you know, with the man in the iron cage and the trembling man has been given to him and he's supposed to hold on to these things throughout the rest of his journey. What do these things mean for the rest of my journey? And, and again, I think the summary says, I have both, I'm fearful and hopeful, but I'm moving forward and then Watson says, you know what? If you lose this idea of perseverance, well, how are you going to persevere? Well, that's going to be the question, right, that he's going to answer. How would you lose a sense of perseverance? Do you just give up on a doctrine of perseverance? What does that mean? Well, where does he take us? Right to the cross. You see, it's the cross in this context that has everything to do with running the race. And it has everything to do with running the race in a good way, we could say, right? It's like, where does Bunyan put this sense of assurance in for the Christian? He puts it in for him as he's running the race. You know, 
assurance doesn't save me, but assurance sure does help me run the race. And it sure does help me run the race cheerfully, right? So that, that's, where he, that's where he's putting it in here. So we come to the sepulcher and the cross, and again, the context is running the race or persevering in the faith and going through the journey that we have here, right? Uh, one of her books, Rosara Butterfield, uh, talking, she says, you know, when I read the Bible, I read you know, this and this and this, but when I get to the book of Acts, she says, I always read the book of Acts in one set, setting, sitting. I always pick it up and I read it from the beginning to the end because I want to have the whole story right, as I'm reading it. And I, as I'm reading that, I'm going, man, what, what a neat lady, right? But I think, too, that is the way you have to read sometimes, right? So, so, so we can't go through Pilgrim's Progress in one big story, but certainly as you're reading it, you can't read the story like we're going through it. Oh, today I'm just going to read about, you know, the trembling man, or I'm just going to read about this. You got to read a story like a story, right? You got to read, oftentimes, as, and it, as we've been going through with the you know, Old Testament, uh, with biblical theology, you, you gotta see that sometimes, man, just you read the story like a story. You're, you're not reading it just to pick apart one or two things, you're reading it to get the whole thing, right? So Bunyan's uh, writing a book for us, and as he's writing a book, he's thinking we're gonna at least read sections of it, you know? And when you get to the cross, and this is for more for personal stuff, you've got to read it in the context of the whole story. I mean, if I just get up here and go, oh, he gets to the cross and his burden falls off, you'll go, okay. You know, but if you get from the very beginning, right, he's not, even, he's not even two sentences into the book, and we've got a man clothed in rags having a great burden on his back. I mean, right, right at the very beginning, here's, here's my story. Here's this man, he's got a big burden on his back. And, and you're like, oh, okay, what's that all about? Well, of course, Christians, we know. It's right from the beginning, and he's, and, he, and he's running to the slough of despond, right? <laughs> because that's the way it's pronounced. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so he gets there, and what's weighing him down? The burden's weighing him down, right? It's like, can you get? Hey, what are you doing in that? What are you doing in that mud? I want to get out. Well, get out. I can't. I've got this. I've got a burden on my back. It's this burden that I've been running with. It's the burden that I started the story with. It's the burden that's taken me to here. It's the burden that will sink me at this part, right? Uh, it's the burden that, that causes him to listen to Mr. Worldly Wiseman. Why does he listen to Mr. Worldly Wiseman? Mr. Hey, what are you doing? I'm walking. Why are you walking this way? I've got a burden on my back, right? I, I can't get rid of this burden. It's on my back. Can you do anything? Yeah, I think I can. Let me give you some counsel. Right, so the, the, burden, the burden is there for, for the whole story, right? And then, and then the burden, when he, when he listens to the bad counsel, and then he, he, goes, he goes and he's under Mount Sinai, so, and the burden it gets heavier, right? As he's under, the, uh, he's under the weight of the law anyway, but he's getting more under the weight of the law, so he's got this burden that is just crushing him, and he can't get rid of it. And, and, and then here's the thing, in the story here, even, even as he gains entrance into the wicked gate, what does he carry through with him? What? His burden, 
right? He's still got the burden. I mean, even after going through and being helped in, he still has this burden. And that's part of his desire with Mr. Interpreter. Can I leave? Is it time for me to leave? Is it time for me to leave? No, it's not time for you to leave. No, I got one more thing. No, I got one more thing. No, I got one more thing. So, so what, what Bunyan's picturing then is, is this, the idea of like, oh, when you read it, and for some of us, read it when we were in the midst of carrying a burden. Right? So I don't know about everybody. I can't remember exactly if it was the first time, but the first time or the second time I read Pilgrim's Progress, I was under a heavy burden, and I had no assurance, right? I was just struggling so hard with a sense of assurance, struggling so hard with uh, the idea of, of uh, my sins, and, and, I, and I read this, and I mean, you just, you're like, oh, this is just so good, right? And you, so he comes to the place, right? Says, so now I saw in my dream that the highway uh, up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall is called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did a burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with a cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do so till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. And you just go, praise God, right? I mean, that's just wonderful. And then it says, then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even until the springs that were in his head sent the waters down upon his cheek. Now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with, Peace be to thee. So the first said to him, Your sins be forgiven. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with a change of raiment. And the third also set a mark on his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he bid him look, at, look on as he ran, and that he should give it in at the celestial gate. And uh, I'm going to skip a little bit. And he says, Then Christian gave three leaps for joy, and went on singing. Thus far did I come, loaden with my sins, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place is this. Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall from off my back. Must here the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Well, Again, it's just, just a wonderful part to read. And I want to reiterate, he's not writing a systematic theology here. He's writing a book. He's writing a story. So where he doesn't get things lined up exactly like we would want them to line up, you know, it's okay, it's a story. Okay? But in the story, he wants us first, I think, to be moved, just like he was moved. He wants our hearts to be moved at the sight of the cross. At, at the cross is where... I really lose my burden, right? 
But he also wants us to keep the context in mind. This is part of his sanctification. This is, this is not his conversion story. This is part of his sanctification. So the Puritans, uh, their focus on personal assurance, and, and they had a big focus on it, right? Uh, it arose for two, two main reasons, okay? Why did they place such an emphasis on assurance? And for the Puritans, uh, there are, I think, two main things, okay? And the first was this, what they saw to be dead orthodoxy, right? What they saw to be uh, that you could grow up. So the, pilgrim, or the Puritans' uh, emphasis on assurance, we see develop over time. And we see it develop over time for different reasons, but one of the big reasons is this. You're a parent, and you're having kids. What's your big concern? That they would be saved, yeah. And if they grow up in the church, and they can recite everything, do you still have some concern? Yeah. If you, if you every Sunday, they can, you know, you, you know, hey, you know, recite the, uh, the psalm and they recite it, and everybody's excited, and it's neat, and it is neat, okay? But as a parent, especially with little ones, you go, this is part of it, right? But my, what's my big concern is that you're actually saved, right? So for the Puritans, uh, uh, the idea of like, can there be dead orthodoxy, right? Well, they're seeing that more in their second generation, you know, okay? Uh, certainly they would have had friends fall away from Christ or something, but they're seeing it, it becomes more of a problem in the second generation. Why? Because everybody's going to church. Everybody's going to church. Everybody's learning the right doctrine. Everybody's learning to be catechized. Everybody's learning exactly the right thing. But is everybody regenerate, right? And they're like, oh. So the idea of assurance now becomes, a, becomes into play for them. They want, okay, what we want is some sense of not just formalism, not just uh, being able to articulate sound doctrine, but something that would give us some sense of like the person actually is regenerate, right? So that, that's, the, that's the first thing. Okay, they wanted to know or be able to somehow see or be able to communicate to people what the new birth actually looked like or, you know, even felt like in some sense, okay? Uh, and the second one, and we've talked about it, is this. The, the Puritans took sin and self-examination really seriously, right? Uh, there, there was no sense for the Puritans of I'm saved and uh, if there's sin in my life, oh, well, that's, you know, I guess that'll go away in glory, you know, and that's, that's, you know, we don't need to worry about that till then. Uh, no, for them, uh, the sense of sin was something that believers had to take seriously, and if they didn't take it seriously, then the concern would be, oh, well, why not? You know, why aren't you taking this seriously? What's, what's going on with you, right? So those are the two things, and their, their answer, in part to it, uh, was the doctrine of perseverance, and tied to perseverance is assurance, Right? And so, so what they're wanting to do is address these things. So uh, Bunyan, again, is uh, picturing personal assurance, which is what's happening here, right? At the sepulcher, following the events in the interpreter's house, it really flows rather naturally if you look at, if you look at it that way. What would he need now? He'd need, he'd need this sense of, you know, the, this heartfelt, if we could say, sense of, of, of peace with God. Why? Because he needs to run the race, 
because he needs to go, right? He needs to not stop. He needs to not, he needs to not uh, be waylaid by false uh, counsel from here on out. He needs to keep moving. So again, uh, you know, that's, that's how we look at it. There are a lot of ways to look at what's going on. You could, uh, you could deal with the cross and the sepulcher in other ways, I guess, but contextually, what, what Bunyan's doing is he puts it there for a reason, and the reason is because it helped him run the race. So Bunyan, like, um, I think, uh, oh, I forget who I was reading, the other uh, Puritans, um, Perkins, I think, was the first guy that made the distinction uh, between weak faith which although weak is still certain and true faith, and strong faith, which is full, of, uh, full persuasion of the heart. This is so neat. So for the Puritans, who really did make a big deal about, you know what, you better examine yourself, okay? You better look to see what that sin's all about. They made a real big deal about that, but they didn't, they, 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 they didn't leave people there, right? It, wa- it wasn't like, hey, do self-examination until you like just or immobilized, right, until you can't move or something. It was like, because sin's serious, you need to be serious, but, but, but what they wanted you to do was to continue to move, right? What they wanted you to do was continue to, to press on. And so as they're looking at it, as theologians, but also as pastors, they begin to look and they say, you know what, you can have weak faith. A believer can have weak faith. It's certain and true. But it is saving faith. It, it will get you into heaven just as assuredly as if Paul the apostle getting into heaven, right? Because the faith is on the, uh, on the object of who it is. So weak faith for, for the uh, Puritans, and as Bunyan's gonna picture up throughout, and again, uh, we talked even in the second book, I think he does even a better job of this, of painting the picture of a true Christian with weak faith persevering all the way through the end, Right? That, that's just, that is just true. But as a pastor, he wants you to like, but I want you to have joy. Okay, you may persevere all the way through. And, and you may be halt and lame and, and all this, but I want you to have joy. And so the, for, for them, the, the sense of a strong faith was, was more the, a sense of that, that, uh, that full persuasion of the heart, Right? And so that's, again, that's what he's going to picture. He's going to picture, uh, Christian will sometimes, you know, waver a little bit with this. He's going to lose his assurance almost right away when he, when he gets away from the cross and he's going to gain it again. But again, in other characters, but again, talking to people as a pastor and he's wanting to get these things across, he's saying this, okay, you may have entered the uh, wicked gate with the weakest faith possible but you entered through the wicked gate, okay? And you did go through the interpreter's house, and you are moving this way, and you need to continue to move forward, but you, you, but you will continue to move forward, right? And so, so this idea of comfort for the, for the um, you know, for the weak, struggling uh, believer, as it were. So... Uh, assurance and all other works of sanctification. So assurance falls under not, so if you have like a you know, rubric, okay, what's the heading of this or whatever, it's uh, assurance does not fall under conversion, okay? Assurance falls under sanctification. What an important truth that is, because if you're struggling, if you're here struggling with assurance, okay, I want to tell you, your lack of assurance is, has 
is not an indicator whatsoever, as far as that goes, of not being saved. There are other things that you may look at and that the Bible points you to that would be indicators of not being saved. One of them, walking in willful sin and not repenting, right? I mean, there are things that, that the Bible does warn us about, okay? But lack of assurance isn't, isn't, doesn't fall under that category. Assurance falls under the category of sanctification, ongoing sanctification, you know, perseverance, however you want to put it. And Bunyan does just a wonderful job of putting it where it belongs in the Pilgrim's Progress. Your assurance belongs here because it will, will help you, right? So assurance uh, is a sign. Uh, one of the Puritans says it's a sign or a document of faith, and it's not the ground of faith. So John Owen also struggled with uh, assurance early on, okay? And uh, he recounts his experience. He's writing about uh, his commentary on Psalm 130. And uh, he says, I myself preach Christ. For some years, when I had but very little of any experimental acquaintance with access to God through Christ, until the Lord was pleased to visit me with sore affliction, whereby I was brought to the mouth of the grave, and under which my soul was oppressed with horror and darkness. But God graciously relieved my spirit by a powerful application of Psalm 130, verse 4. But there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And he goes on, from whence I receive special instruction, peace, comfort, and drawing near to God through the mediator and preach thereupon immediately after my recovery. Owens is talking as a Christian and he's relating a, uh, a psalm that David wrote about himself, okay? He's saying this is the experience of a Christian. And Owens saying, you know what? I, I even preached quite a bit. Not, not that I didn't know it, but man, my heart was burdened, you know, with, with this lack of assurance until God brought me very low with this, with this overwhelming sense of sin. But then by his grace and mercy, he opened up my eyes to there's forgiveness with you. Why? So that you may be feared. Right? That, that message is for a Christian, okay? I, I, I want to tell you, that, that, that's, 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 that's not put on the track and, you know, this is what you give to unbelievers and stuff. That, that was written for Christians, okay? There's forgiveness with you so that you may be feared. So Owens is speaking of sanctifying grace there, right? And again, uh, think, think of the picture that, uh, that's been painted for us. When, uh, when Christian comes to the man in the iron cage, what does Christian try to do? Yeah, he tries to encourage, he tries to, he preaches to him, doesn't he? Okay, it's, it's, this is very similar to Owen's thing, which I think is interesting. Okay, he's talking to the guy. He said, hey, why are you in the uncreated? Why, why not look to Christ? Why not, why not stop this, right? Okay, he, he's looking on, he's doing it out of a sincere heart, okay? Uh, 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 Bunyan at this point is going, is contrasting Christian with two men, He's contrasting with the man in the iron cage, and he's contrasting with the, with the trembling man. And, and there's a difference, right? There's a real difference. The man in the iron cage, where do we leave him? In the iron cage. Yeah, we leave him in the iron cage. Uh, the trembling man, where do we leave him? It's still trembling on the edge of the precipice, as far as we know. Where's Pilgrim? Is he still in the interpreter's house? No. 
all the difference in the world, right? All the difference in the world. Or how, how can I tell if I'm the man in the iron cage? How can I tell if I'm the trembling man? The man in the iron cage seems like he's lost forever. I sure hope I'm not him because he's got no hope whatsoever. How can I tell if I'm the trembling man? Because sometimes I, I fear and sometimes I don't. And sometimes I don't know. I feel like I'm on the edge of the cliff and I don't know what to do. How can I tell? And here's his answer. Christian is no longer in the interpreter's house. He's moved on, right? He's continuing the race. He's continuing the journey. It's, it's just this wonderful picture. Okay, unbelief actually looks like those two guys, and belief, for however weak it is, when he's, when he's talking to the man in the cage, he's not being a hypocrite. He's not going, hey, believe in Jesus. I really don't, but I think I know it's true, right? Okay, he's not doing that. He's going, believe in Jesus, because if you do, you can get out of this iron cage, right? It's, he's not being a hypocrite. He's just weak in the faith, right? But he's, but he's in the faith. And so he's, continue, he's continuing to move, to move on, right? And so, again, that's, that's a picture that he's, painting, that he's painting for us here. So Christians uh, following and obeying God is uh, it's demonstrated in part by his witnessing, but it's demonstrated in large part by his simply continuing on and, and moving forward. Uh, Owen, uh, in the same work on Psalm 130, um, but with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. And then he says, forgiveness in the blood of Christ not only takes guilt away from the soul, but trouble from the conscience, which sets us free to walk in obedience. You see, here's the thing. How can I walk in obedience? Well, one, we just do because God's given us, he's, he's made us alive. How can I walk in obedience? And here's the answer. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. It, it, it's, it's the forgiveness with you so that you may be feared. It's the goodness of God that leads someone to repent. If you're struggling, it's all, well, even if you're not struggling, it's always the cross of Christ. This is what, this is what he's saying. And, it, and, and he's saying, how are you going to move? How are you going to continue to move on? It's always looking to Christ. It's simply always looking uh, to Jesus Christ. And assurance then becomes not this thing of like, oh, am I saved or not saved, okay? It's not that. It's like, I may be weak in the faith. God, grant me the assurance. Not so that, it, you know, you know, because I'm, you know, just not gonna, you know, so that I'm dead and trespassing. Grant me the grace of your assurance so that my service is done to you with joy, right? So that I move, that I move forward, and then I move him forward in, in, in a way that, that brings me joy and actually sets me free. Here's the other thing. Apart from that, your walk with God, if you're a Christian, apart from that sense of assurance, your walk with God is going to be very labored. All right? And you will be very reluctant to lay down your life. Okay? Just because that's the nature of the thing. The person that is most assured actually tends to, you know, not fall into sin so much and actually move forward and not be caught up in all these things. And so, so Owen again saying, you know, we walk and uh, there's a freedom to walk, right? So um, again, the idea of doing this so that so that we're made alive to God. So the believer, and this is what's happening, becomes dead to the law. 
And when you're dead to the law and alive to Christ, like the sepulcher, you're dead to the law, you're alive to Christ, right? The law can no longer condemn you and the law can no longer justify you. And you want to go, okay, great, I know that. In the context of sanctification, when we're not looking to the cross, we continue to try to self-justify ourselves. And what does your labor look like if you're trying to self-justify yourself? Is it a happy labor? No. That you're continually condemned that way. You, you, in a sense, you work and work and work, and you feel just as empty as, you, as when you started. You work and work and work and feel just as far away from God as when you first started. You see, you work and work and work, and yeah, if you're really a Christian, you actually, whether you know it or not, you really are moving forward, but the sense of guilt is still there, the sense of emptiness is still there, because all my labors are simply still labors in, a, in some sense of self-justification. And you're not understanding the law can't justify you. Why am I not understanding the law can't justify you? I'm not looking at the cross, right? So under the law, there's power of sin. I, I don't, we don't always connect these dots. Why does sin have so much power over me, you know? And sometimes it's, it really is just like this. We're not looking to the cross. Why? Well, I, I know I looked at the cross for forgiveness. No, you're not looking to the cross in that you really are no longer under the law and therefore cannot be condemned by it and also therefore cannot be justified by it. And we move forward not by, by that way, but by a brand new way, a brand new living way. So let me, uh, let me read this. It's long, but it's great. So long as men are under the condemnation of the law and feel themselves bound by its demands of obedience as the condition and ground of their acceptance with God, they do and must feel that he's unreconciled, that his perfections are arrayed against them. Their whole object is to propitiate him by means which they know to be inadequate. Their spirit is servile, their religion a bondage, their God a hard master. To men in such state, true love, true obedience, and real peace are like impossible. But when they are brought to see that God, through his infinite love, has set forth Jesus Christ as a propitiation for our sins, that he might be just and yet justify those that believe, that is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us, they are emancipated from their former bondage and made sons of God. God is no longer a hard master, but a kind father. Obedience is no longer a task to be done for reward. It is the joyful expression of family love. The whole relation of the soul to God is changed, and all our feelings and conduct change with it. That we have no works to perform in order to obtain justification We have everything in order to manifest our gratitude and love. Do we then make the law, make void the law through faith? God forbid, we establish the law. There is no such thing as real acceptable obedience until we are thus delivered from the bondage of the law as a rule of justification and are reconciled to God by the death of his son. Till then, We are slaves and enemies and have the feelings of slaves. When we have accepted the terms of reconciliation, we are the sons of God and have the feelings of sons. Now, that's from Hodge, and his quote is a little bit different, the context, but I want to say Christians know what it's like 
to feel like God can be a hard taskmaster. We know what it's like to labor as a slave. And yet we're not. Yet we're sons. The, the weakness of our faith has nothing to do with my justification. I'm completely, the weakness of my faith has, has something to do with my not realizing I am completely free from the law. At the sepulcher, there's no law. It's, it's done away with. For the Christian to walk and to walk in joyful obedience, it's, it's like Hodge saying here, hey, when you accept, isn't it when you accept the stipulation that God set forth, that his son stands in your place, he goes, you no longer have the feeling of slaves. You now have the feeling of sons. And you, and, and you, and you walk like that. So I'm going to wrap it up here. The, the idea of the law in no way could make us uh, right before God is something that everyone here, I think, okay, most people, anyone, everyone here that's saved understands that. Where we get in trouble is where we carry that over to my relationship with God today. And even though I know intellectually that that's not true, that there's no other sacrifice can be made than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, I find myself starting to live trying to please God with what I do, okay, as a sense of propitiating him, or trying to please God with my obedience, or trying to please God with my thing. And all that can, all that can produce in your life, all that can produce is, is despair and emptiness and bondage to sin and not moving forward, right? And I'm, t- I'm talking about people who have true faith, okay? That, that, that's what it produces in your life. But the idea of looking to Christ and seeing him and moving forward because of an assurance of who he is and what he's done. So Peter, Peter says the same thing. He says he's given, he's given us all these things. You know, he's, uh, his, his, his power has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, right? So he's given us life and godliness. He's given us everything. He says, so therefore, add to your faith, right? He's given us everything uh, that we need, so therefore, add to your faith. This is, the, uh, this is uh, Christian He's gone through the wicked gate. He's gotten everything, okay? But therefore, add to your faith, virtue and, uh, and knowledge and all this. And then Peter will go and say, but if you lack these things, anybody know what Peter says? If you lack these things, what your problem is? You're blind? Short-sighted? Having what? Forgotten what? You've forgotten the forgiveness of your sins. Add these things. Oh, if they're not being added, Christian, you've forgotten something. You're being blind, you're being short-sighted. You've forgotten about the forgiveness of your sins. And then he doesn't just leave us there. He says, because if, you, if you're doing these things, there'll be a, it'll be an abundance, right? So here's the thing. If we're stumbling or if we're struggling in this way, it's, oh, because we're blind and we've forgotten. That's why, he puts, that's why he puts the cross where he puts it, Right? And then you move on, right? Because if you add to these things, you're going to see that your life, your life with Christ is that of a son or of a daughter and not, not the feeling as a slave. Well, let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Lord, we, we, we thank you for Bunyan, and we do pray, God, that the reality of the gospel for us here today as your children, God, would overwhelm us and we would understand through the preaching today, through the singing, through everything that goes on,
that all of your people would understand, Lord, that you love them. Lord, that you love them so much, God. And Lord, that there's nothing, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And may our hearts be filled uh, with a sense of our salvation and of our Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.